Uh, if you would, open your Bibles to uh, Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, you know, uh, Rebecca and I are just so appreciative of all the uh, praises and uh, good comments we got from you guys uh, as she led worship for the few months. Uh, we really appreciate the support. And she had a really good time doing it and enjoyed herself. Although I know she was, is very happy to hand it off to Ian. And uh, one of the reasons why she had, she didn't know what her expectations were going to be, what it would be. You guys probably had no expectations when she got up here, so it was a good match. Uh, so, you know, in, in marriage, if you ask me to give you one piece of advice, it's to keep your, keep your expectations low and your commitment high. And so I ask you to do that with Ian now as he comes on. You know, not that we, shouldn't ex- we, we don't expect great things, but give him time to settle in and, and find his place here. And let's keep our expectations low and our commitment high and just feed him full of praise and thank- thankfulness that we have him here as he uh, just grows and that we grow with him. And on the flip side, same, keep your expectations low of us because you heard about as much clapping today as you'll ever hear, because during when you're up here, there won't be any clapping. <laughs> it, I mean, clapping here is like, it's like that. So, it, in fact, I will I will say that you could be sainted if you could get us to clap in unison, because <laughs> it would be a miracle. All right, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Thanks for proving my point. All right, well, let's open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for bringing us here today on this uh, rainy Sunday morning, Lord. Uh, Hopefully when we go out, the sun will be shining and we'll have a new perspective on life, Lord. Uh, And even if it's not sunny, may we just have the joy of knowing your Son, Jesus Christ, and the peace of knowing your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I, as I went through reading uh, Ecclesiastes 5 and trying to write my sermon outline, which I was kind of disappointed because Jim Katz had this like, huge outline for all the announcements, and then it just stopped when it came to my sermon. I, I thought he was going to write it for me, but it, it didn't happen. I, I was trying to figure out you know, how this all fits together, and sometimes it's hard in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament because they have a different mindset. And I know I've talked about this before as I preach through Ecclesiastes, but the Eastern mindset, when they go to tell a story or to teach, they teach in a circular motion. So they go from point A to point B, but they circle around it and around it and get ever closer until they finally get to the point. Whereas in Western thought, we go very logically from point A to point B. And so sometimes it's hard to preach out of the Old Testament because they're going in a circular mindset to then convert it to you guys to a linear thought process so you can to grasp what's going on. And really the big idea of chapter 5, the overall point, is in your religion, in your politics, in your, in your labors to find contentment. To be content 
It is a true gift of God to find that contentment and to find joy in the midst of oppression and religious one-upmanship and your toilsome work. It is a true gift of God to just find that joy. And so I was thinking, who are the people in my life that I've seen that have had a tough lot? Just, you know, the cards were dealt them and they just had it tough, but they always seemed to have joy. And I thought of a couple co-workers at an organization uh, that I used to work for. One, his wife had mental illnesses, and he, he just faithfully loved her. But it came to a point where she was uh, causing him to go into financial bankruptcy because she couldn't stop spending money. And so he had to get legally separated from her, although he didn't move out of the house and he didn't, he didn't you know, stop being married to her from the covenant aspect. He had to legally get separated so that she could stop using his name and his credit to get more money. And because of that, because he worked at a religious organization, they basically said, well, we understand why you did it, but we can't have you in the current position you're in, which he was uh, in the financial, he was a controller. And they basically demoted him and kind of put him in a back room. And you know what? That man stayed there for another 20 years, serving happily. And when I, when I left, he was 75, had been working there 35 years, and you would have never known that that man had, had been dealt those cards because he had so much joy. And he, just, he didn't have to work, he just loved working at this organization, and he kept it up. And you look at that and you go, that's something beyond what normal people would do. And there was another man I worked with at the same organization who... He worked full-time, and he never had a great job there, but he, an, enough. But he also pastored this small inner-city church. And week in and week out, he just fed the flock and shepherded the flock and did his job at, at uh, my organization, at this organization. And, you know, I just looked at that, and I said, you know, there'll be no banners for him anywhere uh, except maybe in heaven but in this world, no one praises him. His church always stayed about the same size because in the inner city, you get lots of turnover and people moving from one place to the next. But he faithfully shepherded his flock. And see, that, that resonates with me because I, I'm, always, I'm always pushing, always going, always trying to you know, do something better than the last time. And sometimes I need to reflect and just stop and say, you know what? What the Lord has given me is sufficient. And so as I, I read chapter 5, it, it struck me as we went through Ecclesiastes, as I've gone through the last few weeks, he, or last year or two, uh, from all the way from chapter 1 now to chapter 5, is the teacher's trying to present to us that this world system that we live in that if we live with a viewpoint that is under the sun, that if we don't see God in all of this, that our life can have no meaning. All of our actions will be meaningless. That nothing we can do can add meaning or purpose to our life. And that's what the world is really searching for. That's what all of us are searching for. Is there a purpose to all of this? And he goes through seeking pleasure 
in chapter 2, but pleasure only momentarily satisfies the heart. And he, he seeks pleasure through wisdom and through folly. He parties it up and still finds that it's destructive and doesn't give him any kind of significant meaning to life. He builds great mansions and palaces and finds that that's only a momentary satisfaction of the heart, but the eyes still want more. And then he reflects on all our activities and what we do, you know, birth and death and war and, and love and everything. And he says, you know what? In God's timing, everything is perfect. In God's timing. And we don't know whether our action is, is perfect in His timing or not. But He does. And He will judge all of our actions at death. And, and that is the ultimate definer of whether our actions are, are purposeful and meaningful is how they will be judged by God. And death is the ultimate reminder that we have something, that we have a God that is going to judge our actions. And that if our actions don't, aren't worthy uh, of, his, of His judgment, then they have no purpose. And we saw that the reason there's so much toil and so much strife and it feels like there's always a force against us is because of the fall and the curse on the ground from, from the fall. And so we see that as a result of the fall that this is the state of humanity and the state of nature. And so we saw last time I preached on chapter 4, it was the results of envy. And the results of envy are oppression, achievement, and advancement. And what are we advancing for and what are we achieving for? And then we come to chapter 5. And an odd thing happens. He shoves religion right in after envy. And then he talks about greed right after religion. So if you would, open your Bibles up to chapter 5, Ecclesiastes, and let's read verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not to fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at me, at you, and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. So coming to God with empty dreams and many words displays our lack of understanding of what it is to know God. For if we know God, our words are few and, and we find joy in what He has already given us. 
You know, I couldn't figure out, it took me a while to figure out why religion was stuck between envy and greed. And then I realized that, you know what, the results of the fall are envy and greed. The, the very sin of man is envy and greed. Man was envious of what God had. God had this knowledge, and Satan exposed that envy. You know, he said, you will be more like God if you have this knowledge. And that's what man wanted. He was envy of what God had. And then greed is just a result of that. Wanting to get as much as you can. And I thought, why would you stick religion in between these two? And then I realized that the fruit of the Spirit is the exact opposite of envy and greed. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And so, it, it dawned on me that if you come to God with a bunch of words and you're not there to listen, but you're there for yourself, that, that you're there just to show others how great thou art, then, then you're not there for the right reason. But if you go to God with, with the intent to listen and the attitude of submission, that you're going to be filled with the Spirit. You're going to be walking with the Spirit. And therefore, you're, not, you're going to have joy and peace instead of envy and greed. And so it dawned on me at that point that the reason why he put religion right in the middle of envy and greed is because he's making the point that if you come to God with the right heart, He's going to give you contentment. And you're not going to want the money. And you're not going to want the limelight. And you're going to submit to Him. And you're going to enjoy what He has given you. No matter what it is. Or how little or how great. And so the first verse here, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. So he's saying here that those who draw near simply to listen do not give themselves any occasion of getting into trouble. Verse 2, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart, but utter to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. So this isn't a criticism of prayer. This isn't knocking prayer. It, but it is contending that we have nothing to offer God. And there is no position to bargain or to, to impress Him. You know, and that is so true. That when we come before God, it's our relationship with God isn't because He needs us. It's because He desires to have a relationship with us. He desires to include us in His work. Not because He needs us to do what He needs to get done. And so that is the attitude we need. And verses 3-7, through seven, As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. 
Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at you for what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. So in dreaming and not doing, there's abundance of both vanity and words. In other words, fools try to advance themselves before God with great vows and promises. But the righteous man listens and submits. You know, we often call the foxhole Christian the one who gets himself in a jam and then says, God, if you get me out of this, I will do anything you want. You know, there's even some great Bible characters in the Old Testament. Let's start with Jacob. Jacob said, God, if you bless me, I will follow you. And, and, he, and he did. God continued to bless him until there came a point when Jacob and, and God literally wrestled. And Jacob finally comes to the point where uh, the angel cracks him in the hip, busts his hip, and is about to leave. And Jacob just clings to him and says, no, I will not let you go. I will not let you go. And at that point, Jacob was there to listen instead of get what he wanted out of God. And that's with us too. You know, I I had a time where uh, this passage where it talks about if you have a vow, make sure you fulfill it. When Rebecca and I first got married, I, uh, I had a little money and so I decided I'd put it in the stock market. And I told God when I did it that whatever gain I get this first trading, I'll give to you. And so I did. After a couple months, I, I, I had turned a good gain. And I was all amped, getting ready to give it to the church. It was like a Tuesday or something. And I was waiting for Sunday to come around. Well, then a certain stock, the price just crashed in it. And I thought, you know what? I'll buy this and then I'll, I'll turn it around quick and then I'll give God his, his money that I promised. And what happened was that stock went down even further. And I knew it would come back up, so I was just waiting. Well, in the midst of waiting, the Lord was just, the Holy Spirit was just pounding me that this wasn't right, that you made a vow and you need to fulfill it. And I kept coming across passages in the Bible, just random. In the New Testament, let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. And in the Old, in the Old Testament, in uh, Malachi, it talks about fulfilling your vows. And, and then finally, I came across this passage. And I was just on my knees praying to God. And I said, fine, God. Tomorrow morning, I will sell this stock at a loss. I will call the lesson learned and I will give you the money that, that I, I need to give you. And it was, you, you know what, that was the cheapest lesson of keeping my word I ever had to learn. And I'm glad it happened that way so that at 22, 23, I could learn a valuable lesson that I can keep for the rest of my life. But make sure if you make a vow to God, or to anyone for that matter, that you fulfill it. Because he's counting on it. And he'll bless you. You know, that, the money I, I lost and everything, it was just money. You know, but my integrity was worth much more than that. And that's what God taught me. 
And then we flip right from religion and we go into corruption and we talk about greed. A world of corruption and oppression is a product of the fall. So don't be taken back because God has used man's greed to create some stability. So man's greed and discontentment with what God has given him causes corruption and oppression. Even the corrupt, though, needs some stability to prosper. So kind of an interesting passage here in verses 8 and 9. For if you see the oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are higher other officials. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So we see here that we shouldn't be shocked by corruption in the highest places. And, and that the very nature of government, the layer upon layer of officials, it, it lends itself to corruption. Not only that, it offers protection to those who are corrupting. And we see this all the time. I mean, in Illinois, we, we wrote the book. Practically, I mean, we at least took this passage to heart, and we and we created layer upon layer of bureaucracies. But the ninth verse is actually kind of interesting because it says here that the increase from the land is taken by all; the king himself profits from the fields. It's probably better translated, but in all, an advantage for the land is the king, for the sake of agriculture. So God has established government. His first ordained uh, establishment in society for civilization is the husband and wife, man and woman, coming together, being joined as one flesh. That is the core of all societies. When you take that away, you will take away all stability in the society. That, that relationship, that covenantal relationship that binds the family together, that binds the community together, that binds the nation together, is the family. The second institution that God established was the government. And He raises up leaders and He takes them down. He raises up nations and He takes them away. That's in order to stabilize our, our societies. The third thing He instituted is the church. And the church is also a stabilizing presence in society, but has the ultimate goal of reaching people through the body of Christ, as the body of Christ. So the government, this, this thing that he has created, he's basically pointing out that even though you see this corruption and you see it going on, and the very system that's set up, is, there's no way to stomp out the corruption. And what he's trying to get at is, don't be so alarmed by it. Don't worry yourself to death about it. And when you start thinking about it, what he keeps pointing at is, don't be viewed under the sun, right? Keep your, keep your viewpoint above the sun. We're not citizens of United States first. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And our first citizenship and our first loyalty is to Him. And this country that we live in now, 
although I love it and it breaks my heart to see some things that go on and have gone on for hundreds of years as we, we toil with you know, all, the, all the greed and envy that goes on in the world, it's still, I'm still a foreigner in this land because my true citizenship is the kingdom of heaven. And although I need to be a responsible citizen and I need to do my part, this is not where I should be spending my efforts to change. I should be trying to change things for God's glory because that is my kingdom. And besides, all the corruption actually has a benefit. And a a society without a king, without a government, there's no boundaries or property rights to be maintained. The access to water and to common resources can't be regulated. Aqueducts and dikes will not be kept in good repair. The agricultural economy will collapse. And you've got to imagine, back then, agriculture was the big economy. But even here, you know, it's, it's, no, it's no insignificant coincidence that Blago put his name on all the signs on the tollways. He did that because he wants you to know that when you're driving down the street, he helped put it there. And if he wasn't there, as corrupt as, as they are here, our governors are here, we wouldn't have roads to access. Our economy would come to a complete stop. So the corruption actually helps in that the corrupt actually know that they need to let us get to work in order for them to make money. So God has created a system that actually uses our sin nature to actually work, to keep things working. So when you look at the government, don't fret about it. Accept that you're a citizen of of the kingdom of God and not a, a citizen of this world. And then we're going to go into greed. Greed is at the heart of man. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace. A man without God is filled with discontentment, but a man that knows God is filled with the Spirit resulting in gladness. Verses 10 through 20. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner? except to feast his eyes on them. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and so he, as he comes, so he parts." He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. So we see here that wealth is both addictive and unsatisfactory. It, it does not satisfy. You can never have enough. I think someone asked Rockefeller, you know, have you ever thought you had enough money? And he replied that you can never have enough money. And that, that's the way it is. It's addictive. You never have enough. I, I mean, even myself, 
I, I bought this giant screen TV, you know, I've been wanting it for like three years and I finally got my 55 inch TV. But then I really, after I got it, I was looking at it, I'm like, man, I could really use a sound system now. <laughs> you just, you just never, it's never enough. And I have to keep it in check. You know, you have to say enough is enough. But it, you know, your eyes always want more. You can never satisfy that, that, that flesh that just constantly wants more. It's only by the Holy Spirit that we can overcome that. Because death has been conquered. We are born again. And we don't have to be a slave to that any longer. In verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast their eyes on them? China's learning this right now. As, as goods increase, they've been producing goods, producing goods, and the people can't get enough of them in China. They're just buying them like crazy. We've already been experiencing this for the last 50 years or so. We just, we can never have enough. If you look at what we have compared to what our parents have, it, it's beyond belief the difference in the amount of stuff I have than my parents had at the same time in, in my life. And yet, I still want more. It's a constant battle that I, that, that I have to come to God and say, God, you know, just help me through this. It's walking in the Spirit. Verse 12, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. So the poor man who works hard and basically works for that day's worth of food, he eats what he, he, he earned, he goes to bed and he sleeps because he's worked hard. The rich man had an easier day, he goes to bed and he tosses and he turns. And he can't get any sleep because he's worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. So he has everything, but he has nothing. He doesn't even have peace. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. You know, or wealth lost through misfortune. So we have this wealth that's hoarded. How many times have you seen just this miser who hoards all their wealth and all it is is for them to look at? You know, that's, the very nature of gold is, is that way. You think about it, there's very few products besides jewelry that are really made with gold. They, they line some things with gold for electrical use. But most of the time, Gold is dug up by some poor people in, in Africa and some other countries. And so it's unearthed. Then it's melted down into bars. And then it's put in some safe in the ground so that no one can get to it. And then we say it has value. There is no real intrinsic value in gold. Just that people want it. That's its only value. And they put it where back in the ground where it came from. So it makes no sense. So, you know, wealth lost for some misfortune so that when you have a son, there's nothing left for him. You know, you work hard, you strive, you, you want to build something for your, your children who follow you, and then one instant, it's gone like that. So if, if you just live by greed and you're going to, to hoard wealth, there, there is no comfort in it. There is no purpose in doing it because it can be gone like nothing else. 
And then verse 15, naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. And remember, we talked about this earlier. The, the ultimate negative of misplaced human value is death. Death sums it up very quickly. When you go to do something, what does this help me once I'm dead? Most likely, what you're doing isn't very important. You know, watching that football game, you know, whether the Cubs win the World Series or not, which is not going to happen this year, it, it has no bearing after you're dead. It does not matter one bit. So you take nothing with you for all your labor that you, that you can carry in your hand. Verse 16 through 20 basically sum all of this up. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and to be happy in his life, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life, but God keeps him occupied with the gladness of heart. You know, those two gentlemen I talked about earlier, they had that gladness of heart. They understood what it was to, to have their view above the sun. And even though they had been dealt some bad cards, they found joy. And it wasn't on their own. It's from the Holy Spirit. It's from a relationship with Christ. It's from the Redeemer. When we look at this, this is the world going on here. The greed, the envy... The results of greed and envy are a life that is lived in the dark, a life of anger, a life of futile struggle. But the Redeemer has come in Jesus Christ. And we no longer have to live under the sun, we can live above the sun. And so I just ask you today to look at your own life and to look at the things that motivate you and the reasons why you worry and the reasons why you don't feel as joyful as you should. And are you truly walking with the Spirit? Are you truly feeling the blessings of the fruit of the Spirit? Or are you letting life and your viewpoint under the sun dictate how you feel about life? Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray today, Lord, that we would come before you, Lord, and just...